Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. And I'm Dan Dreser. And this is Space of the Nation, a podcast that looks at science fiction through the lens of politics, because my day job is being a pundit, and I host a politics podcast called With Friends Like These. And my day job is being a professor of international politics at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, but I really, really like science fiction. We are both huge nerds. And we're starting off this season of our podcast, the first season, with what we looked at way back long ago, The Expanse. In the before this time. time see, in the before time. The before time in many, many ways. <laughs> um, we're going to talk about The Expanse, and we're going to start with an extended recap, probably a longer recap than we'll have to do moving forward. Yes. and. Dan is responsible for that part. Right. So uh, the reason the recap is longer this time is because we have to talk about what happened presumably between the end of season four and the end of season five. And then, of course, we need to talk about what happened in this episode, which I believe is called Exodus. So uh, let's start with the flash forward. So I believe six months have passed in the span of the show between the end of season four and the start of this season. If you call the end of season four, what uh, happened with a stealth asteroid being launched towards uh, Earth by Marco Inaris, um, a relatively uh, violent belter. Um, in the span of those six months, a couple of things have happened that have been pretty significant. Uh, the first is that the ring gates are essentially now open for business, which means, according to the news show in the, uh, in the show itself, there has been a diaspora unprecedented in the history of the species. And, you know, Anna, this seems to be pretty good, actually, for both the Earth and the OPA. Well, why would you say that? <laughs> I would say that because essentially what this has done is on Earth, it solved the problems of mass unemployment and homelessness. Um, so indeed, in the news recap we get in the show, we discover that homelessness is at a record low on Earth. And the reason that it's at a record low is that under Nancy Gao, you have a lot of Earthers who are essentially leaving to colonize new worlds. Um, indeed, Avasarala is chairing the UN Commission to accelerate that immigration, uh, which he finds uh, very wryly amusing. This is also, however, boon time for belters. And the reason is, is that as Earthers are leaving, belters are actually coming to places like Luna. They can actually work on Luna as opposed to Earth um, because Luna needs workers as well. So this seems to be good. Also, Medina Station inside the ring is still a critical juncture in terms of getting all these ships through the ring gates. And that is also good to the OPA. Um, and it's a monopoly. They're yes. the only ship available. They're the only way station between the known universe and what's outside the ring gate. Exactly. And the, to use the network language, they are a central node that you cannot avoid. Um, so that, <laughs> that that will be important if we ever talk about weaponized interdependence. Um, but uh, Mars doesn't seem to be doing quite as well. Um, because, you know, to the extent that we see Mars in, in this episode in particular, um, it is suffused with ads for Martians to leave Mars and essentially go on uh, to help colonize the new world. And uh, you see a lot of going out of business signs, basically, on Mars. So it, of the three sort of, you know, key power centers in the solar system, it would be safe to say that Mars seems to be suffering in no small part because, and we talked about this um, with respect to season four, the discovery of the new worlds and essentially free air and free water has really sort of cut at the core of what the sort of Martian mission of planet building was. Um, so that is essentially what we have uh, missed during those last six months. 
with this episode, uh, it kicks up with uh, the stealth asteroids continuing to go on their merry way. And indeed, the Marco Anaris faction clearly wants them to remain a secret because they actually destroy an Earth vessel uh, that discovers the debris of one of them. Um, the Rossi crew is all cast into the four winds. And indeed, if there's a theme of this show, it's about... Uh, returning from family, in quotes, to actual related family. So Amos is is planning to go home to Baltimore uh, by way of Luna. Um, Alex is going home to uh, reunite with his uh, estranged family in Mars. Naomi is uh, going to find Philip and does not want Holden to come. And Holden is worried about all of this because he's Holden. Um, so on Amos's trip, uh, we discover him uh, in a freighter that goes to Luna. There are some interactions, which we will talk about there. He then uh, interacts with uh, Christian Avasarala, who is on uh, the moon, uh, asking him. And I have a lot more to say about that scene. Yeah. Oh, no, I have a lot. But let's say right. It. <laughs> no, 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 I have a lot more to say, too. I'm just trying to get through the plot part of this, because really the entire okay. Amos storyline we want to talk about, including my de- yes, go ahead. strong desire for the Amos and Chrissy show as a spinoff. We ship Amos and Chrissy. <laughs> yes. That's what we do. Um, yeah. <laughs> on Mars, uh, Bobby is clearly trying to get intel on the black market weapon sales uh, from Mars to parts unknown. Although I would add that we, you know, that we probably also figure out now how the Rossi constantly gets resupplied uh, because it probably happens through these black market <laughs> channels as well. Um, Bobby sent uh, Isai's family through the rings, I think as a gesture of guilt based on what had happened from the previous season. Um, Bobby runs into uh, um, Alex. Isai being the crooked cop that yeah. she was sort of involved in during the manic pixie crime girl <laughs> subplot yes um bobby yeah. also runs into alex and i would think it would be safe to say that that does not go well for anyone um yeah in, more there more, more there, there exactly. more to discuss yes. there more to yes. discuss there and then on Tycho, um holden learns uh from a reporter friend monica that the opa still has the protomolecule even though the opa has publicly said they destroyed it uh fred does not deny this um, and is convinced, in fact, that the possession of the uh, protomolecule is why the OPA still has the Medina station. Um, he claims that he will get rid of it once the OPA has an actual navy, which he is building. Um, Holden warns Fred that he thinks the creators of the rings, um, the species that destroyed the species that created the protomolecule, uh, are getting pissed, um, although that's pretty vague. And that is basically where we are. Oh, and one last, I'm sorry, one last thing, which is we, uh, at the, the episode closes with a sort of timeline in which it looks like the asteroid that Marco Inaris launched towards Earth is due to impact in approximately 12 days. I appreciated that, actually, like, because it is, it, it's, it maintains the suspense a little bit, like, because what's going to happen, but we know not to expect it necessarily immediately. And from reading the books, I know that they're still getting their pieces into place. This is like in order to have everything unfold at the right in the right way. So right. So this their, is their chessboard is still expanding. Right. In, t- in the terms of Queen's Gambit, we're still in opening moves. And we are trying to get the middle. game. <laughs> yeah. We're allowed to talk about other and shows. Right? You, <laughs> yes, we are. Yeah. Um, so to get to the themes and favorite quotes, um, 
I'm going to start with the favorite quotes, and and then I think that'll open up pretty easily to themes. I just wrote some stuff that made me laugh. Um, <laughs> the first one was one of the it was early on in the Amos storyline where he says um, that he says he's from the Rossi, and the um, Belter thugs say I have no idea what that is, or I don't know what you're talking about, and he says. I've never heard of that. And he says, you probably have, I'm out of context here. Yes. Which is just like some, <laughs> it's like, it's for one thing, it's like a kind of sophisticated thing to say. And like, I, not that I don't think Amos is sophisticated, but it's just sort of funny and dry. Um, then there's the exchange with Jim and Fred, where Jim is trying to talk about how he has more insight onto the protomolecule than most people. Because, he says, I think it changed my brain, which I laughed at. And then I laughed harder when Fred replies, claiming to have brain damage is not the way to sell me on this, son. <laughs> so it's funny. So so I also love the I'm out of context here. It was just also the way Wes Chatham delivered that line was, was just note perfect. Um, the part of the Holden exchange that I actually thought was interesting was the next line that Holden says, or, or in the, in, right before that, where he says, it's like folding a piece of paper. Fold it enough times, even if you smooth it out, the creases are still there, which I kind of wonder is one of the themes we're going to be dealing with this season and certainly this episode. Oh, I, I think that, um, you know, I, I would relate that back to kind of scarring yeah, or something exactly. like, like that is definitely like one of the things that we're going to dive into this season, which is like the marks that history leaves behind. Right. right? And that it gets to a couple of things here that I think open up to a sub theme. Um, one is a quote from Alex's wife. Here's the answer. You don't get to know, hmm. which is a really powerful thing to say. Cause he's, he's there for some kind of closure with her and, and she, she just nails him. Yeah. Like she says, what you want is either me for to, to forgive you. And that closes it. Or you want to know that things are irreparable and you can just leave and say you did your best. But here's, but you don't get to know, and I think there's a theme of not knowingness to maybe, you know, the whole expanse, but also this particular episode. Like, there's just a lot of unknowns. There's the way the proto molecule works. There's who destroyed the builders, mm -hmm. which don't even have a name yet. Right. Like the thing that destroyed the builders is still the thing that destroyed the builders. And then there's Bobby saying. Some things can't be fixed, and you're a moron to try. And again, like the, I had the next line after that. It's over. Move on. Um, mm -hmm. And so again, in some ways, it was Bobby reinforcing what uh, Alex's wife said. Yeah, so I, I think that the, for me, the big themes are um, Exodus and weirdly the opposite of Exodus because it's like the Rossi team is moving against the tide, like there's this tide going out to the ring worlds, mm -hmm. right? Everyone's going in that direction. Every single crew member of the Rossi is trying to go backward in time. Oh, I like that. That's really good. And it, it ties into something Holden says as in, in his exchange with Fred, which is at one point he just sort of flat out says nothing's ever going to change. Um, and yeah, I had that too. Yeah, and and <laughs> it was just—I mean, it, it comes back to a conversation we used to have, we had before about how you know, despite all the changes in technology, man doesn't change all that much. And in, in some ways, that's what it reminded me of. And the creators of the Expanse have said, in some ways, that's what they are exploring is like how what it takes to change people. And their kind of cynical answer is, <laughs> you can't change people. Um, so it's the Exodus and the opposite of Exodus. Um, I think it's this this kind of unknowability, um, although it, that, you know, is life in a way. 
and then yes, um, the the scar tissue, or the folds that we carry with us and that can't be undone. No, agreed. So. I think, and we're it's going to be fun to revisit these themes as the the show goes forward. And I should stress, by the way, just for for those listening. Um, both Anna and I are in the same state of knowing and unknowing when it comes to this show. Well, we're not exactly in the same state. Anna has read the books. I have not read the books. But in terms of the show, we have both only watched episode one at this point of season five. So we have no idea what's going to happen um, after this. Because I'm terrible about spoilers. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to risk anything. So if you're ahead of us, awesome. But if you're you're not, well, we're all in this this boat together. So let's get to the to the characters and our favorite parts and and what's new. Which I um, think means we have to start with Amos because that was my favorite part of this episode in particular. Amos is my favorite character. I know Drummer remains yours, yes, which, but uh, Amos is a fan favorite right. and just the most entertaining and complicated character on the show, I would say. Yes, uh, agreed. I was a little sad because there was no Drummer in this episode, but that said, I... I the Amos arc was was rich, and also Amos and 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 Christian Avicerala, whenever they're in a scene, is just automatically right. must watch. So, but so let's do the shuttle yes. first, and then him and and Chrissy, right? Uh, <laughs> Her stripper name, yes, Chrissy. <laughs> right. This is <laughs> which I'm sorry. I'm going to think of the Amos. I've I've even got a, like a theme song for the Amos and Chrissy show, like you know the Amos and Chrissy show, fighting crime, man. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So on the shuttle, yeah. um, I'll do the sort of my, uh, more detailed recap than, than you got in your overall one, which is so he's going to he's going to Luna and then to Earth. Um, he is fairly well kept. That's actually sort of uh, notable mm-hmm. um, when he walks onto the shuttle. It's a uh, lots of belters who are, you know, um, scruffy, scruffy looking. Right. Indeed. The, the- um, and he's pretty like. Yeah, he's pretty he's sharp. He's so sharp that, in fact, the belters, when he first goes into the, the compartment he's going into, are like, are you sure you aren't supposed to be in first class? Right. Yeah. So, and this is, this scene is almost note for note from the book. Ah. So I want to I wanna point out a place that is different, which is that it's a gay couple on one bunk that are the ones that kind of uh, talk to him. And then they say, oh, and, and there's there's her who is a older, older woman who uh, turns out snores, which Amos has already laid out that he is annoyed by. But when he sort of looks at her and sees how old she is and that she's clearly like not in the best of health, his expression changes a little bit. I, and he kind of is like, mm, okay. Yes, and mm. I, I sense there's something to Amos's backstory that we will discover later that, that is connected to that. What's it's interesting is that in the book, there is a similar kind of thing that happens where he sort of lays down a law and then someone, it turns out the annoying thing is, is there. But in the book, it's a child. Ah. And he changes his mind because of it's it's a child. My theory about this is they feel like they haven't broadcast loudly enough that Amos has a thing with older women. <laughs> <laughs> like, we've they, they, they just need to make sure that we know... <laughs> That Amos has some sort of emotional connection with mother figures. 
that that is my theory it, about that particular scene. It's not a bad theory, and in some ways, it weirdly ties into the Amos and Chrissy dynamic. Although we can we can get to that. A little yes. Bit. Oh, it doesn't weirdly. It yeah. does, well, it's a weird, but okay. And then so whatever. And then we have you know Amos does uh, super violence. Um, right, but scene, but before that, and... I cannot stress that I, I have to say one of the most amusing elements of this of this uh, episode was the notion that flight insurance actually is a scam. Um, I have to say, as as someone who has traveled, anyone who has ever like booked a flight, you know, it's always, do you want to pay for the flight insurance or whatever? And, you know, it, that's one of those things that like, you know, as an adult, I've always been like, well, do I or is it real or is it not? And like, you know, eventually I've, I've sort of figured out, no, this is by and large almost always a scam. In the case of the show, it is clearly a scam, but a much more clearly organized crimey kind of scam, um, which Amos puts a stop right. to and then... We, uh, in doing so, guarantees a confrontation with the gang, which takes place in the shower, at which point we say what I like to call is Amos's um, murder, death, kill, happy face. Yes, that is what happens. Um, when he does that, it makes me genuinely uncomfortable, I have to say. Like, I I experience um, emotional discomfort. Like when he goes all out like that, I, it's hard for me to separate it out like as a show sometimes because he, he is really good at it. And we now have come to care for him right. and know that it's not I mean, obviously, it's kind of cartoon violence. But at the same time, unlike in so many other pieces of you know pop culture where the violence when someone is very violent, it's sort of like, well, they're getting to the bad guys. So like that's good and they want to kill the bad guys or whatever we know what amos's relationship to violence is right and and so it's not a clean kind of violence where he's all he's doing is you know offing the bad guys and i, w- I would say the other element of this and indeed it's the way in which that episode that particular sequence was edited is that amos is also reasonably aware of his own relationship to violence mm-hmm. and so i like the way they edited it which was on the one hand you do see the occasional moments of ultra violence but really what that that scene is is him afterwards in the shower almost replaying it and like and, and clearly i think it would be safe to say ambivalent about it but like he, you know he clearly triggers that fight almost like he clearly needs to, is is trying to work through something and also it's pretty clear he hasn't worked through it yet yeah and we can now move on to the also uncomfortable but for entirely different <laughs> reasons <laughs> scene with Avasarala. <laughs> Okay, if you've watched the show, you know what we're talking about, which is I believe this is the first time that Avasarala has actively flirted back to Amos. That is correct. And it would also, like, I mean, this is consistent with Avasarala's plot because as far as we know, yep. she's in Luna. The season four ended with her and Arjun, I guess I'm going to say separated, literally, physically. Taking some time apart. Right. Yes. Um, Taking some time apart. But yes, and, and after I, I, I don't think they had actually seen each other for two seasons because I think in I remember in the season four opener, Amos asked Holden, "What was she wearing?" No, seriously, what was she wearing? I remember that line. But like they hadn't seen each other for quite some time. But yes, there is there is some decent flirting going on. Um, although Amos, I think it is safe to say, is still somewhat closed off because he doesn't want to tell Avasarala anything about what he's doing and why he's going back to Earth. And also, Amos flirts um, inversely with inverse skill to his violence, you know, (laughs) (laughs) or his violence is as heavy as his flirting. Like he's like, he's not subtle with the flirting. He's 
not subtle. She is being a diplomat, <laughs> a little more subtle. But you know what? I hadn't thought about it that that Arjun is a way Avasarala may play kind of, <laughs> kind of thing happening. Um, maybe, although I t- maybe I mean. I tend to agree with you that I don't live this way. I think she's flirting, but I also agree with you that she's doing it in a diplomatic way in order to get more information from him. This is not an actual, like, I don't know what Avasarala actually seriously flirting would look like, but I think it would look different than that. <laughs> I don't, I mean, I think if she really wants something, I don't know if there's much flirting involved. Like That's an interesting <laughs> question. <laughs> But let's just close up on Amos here because two more things. One, um, plot-wise, we know he's going to Baltimore to, he says, settle some affairs. Avasarala was like, you don't seem like the trustee type. (laughs) Um, Insight from the book, it's not like he's settling an estate. There there are other kinds of affairs which need to be settled, which may be closer related to the mob stylings of the folks on the the, uh, shuttle. The other thing... It was so blatant. I know you noticed it, but he's carrying Murtry's bag. I did, did you not, not notice, notice that. <gasps> they do a close up on it twice, and it says Murtry and like scribbled over oh, it. Damn. <laughs> it says like Burton. No, I missed so, that. He is literally carrying Murtry's weight. He is carrying the burden. Wow. Of what happened on illness you know so you could see it maybe he doesn't maybe he doesn't see it that way maybe he's just like i, I appropriated this yeah it's just a it's just a to- totem mm. well wait a minute so i have so hold on i do have to ask a clarifying question then which is i'm assuming mercury is still alive am i wrong in that assumption? yeah okay, but okay, like yeah. i think he's like taking what i'm i think he's like taking on uh like some of mercury like taking oh. on like i don't know like okay he's there's some there's reason why they did it like that's why i was thinking of that like his duty or like his um sense of honor because we know you and i talked a lot about amos last season Mm -hmm. seeming to develop an independent conscience right which previously he'd always relied on naomi exactly naomi right and he seems to be developing something that has his own kind of uh navigation through you know moral life Mm -hmm. Let's move on mm-hmm. uh, to Bobby. Yes. Um, Basically, so she's on Mars. Yeah, Bobby is on Mars. As near as we can figure, she is. Uh, it's not explicit, but I mean, she she's sending messages to Avasarala. She's trying to buy black market weapons. Uh, she doesn't care about the weapons per se. She's trying to figure out where is the source for the really really high grade um, weapons. I think it would be safe to say she is still feeling some guilt about what happened to Isai. Um, and which might explain the mood she is in when she she uh, encounters Alex because she has just seen the sort of message from uh, Isai's family as they've already gone through the rings and are about to, to step down. Um, you know, beyond that, I, I, you can see why she would be in a foul mood because Mars does not seem to be in a good way, frankly. I confess that the scene where Alex, I believe he's going to um, an Indian food restaurant at, at one point. He, he walks up to it and it's closed. Yeah, yeah. And then he walks back right, and, he sees and the, looks up yeah. into the concourse and there's all these going out of business. Um, this space. Everything must rent. go. Yeah. Everything's go. I got a little bit of a pang. Mm-hmm. 
because it reminded me of what things look like for a lot of people right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I think in some ways this is where, I mean, it, it demonstrates the degree to which, you know, the even if you ignore Holden's warnings about the ring gates or what have you, assuming that, that the fact that there are more worlds out there is actually pretty good for most of the solar system. Earth seems to be benefiting. The Belters seem to be benefiting. It makes sense that Mars is not benefiting because Mars of all of these three actors was the most sort of sort of focused, purpose-driven, and long-range planning with the idea of terraforming the planet. And there is no denying the fact that since there are more planets out there, suddenly why would you bother terraforming Mars? It really does, in some ways, represent an existential threat to Mars. And yes, it, it would make sense that it would be a problem. And this is where maybe we can drill down on the political science a little bit, yeah. because we talked about this phenomenon last season, but if maybe you want to refresh people on it, which is this phenomenon when a, what happens to a boom town, basically, when another boom town takes off, right? Or what happens to one set of colonies when a new set of colonies is discovered? Right. And it's essentially, if there's no, if there's no trade or commerce, um, you know, th there are reasons to believe that Mars is going to be suffering from some relative decline. And indeed, th the other sort of element of this you can see was where Alex is on the, the, the subway or the transport and you see the you hear the ad and you see it in the background for are you a trained engineer? Or are you a trained in this? We want you to in the ring worlds, which is a contrast to what those same ads that we saw in season four, which was the first time we got to glimpse Mars, in which you would still see those ads, but those ads were then for the Martian terraforming project. Um, and it, it almost, the, the subtle implication there is that Mars has basically given up um, the the terraforming. And so that's not great. Is there a, something that, that, you, that is in history or in the sort of theory of international relations when a military state starts to crumble? Because <laughs> Mars is quasi-military, right? Like, or martial. Like, it, it has a very mm -hmm. um, duty-centered, um, hierarchy-focused um, society. And it is, like, I, I believe it is, you know, a lot of people are members of the Martian Navy. Yeah. And everything started kind of to, to, to turn. He, at one point, I love it, um, Alex, is no Alex notices dust, on the tram that he's on. He then wipes oh, his fingers and looks at interesting. it. Um, like things are literally like getting dirty. What I would say, the way to think about this is that in some ways it's it's emblematic of East Germany, um, which might be mm. weird, but that, that, you know, East Germany as communist states go was thought to be a state that worked relatively well, you know, that, that there was a strong intelligence apparatus, you know, an efficient authoritarian state. But as it became more and more obvious that the West was doing better, what eventually happened was is that East Germany begins to suffer just from mass immigration. I mean, indeed, the, the trigger for the fall of the wall and for the collapse of the East German state was eventually when was when Czechoslovakia um, said, we will honor East Germans who come to the West German embassy in Prague. We will give them, you know, we will let them go in. And then if they get passports to West Germany, we will let them take the train to West Germany, uh, bypassing East Germany. The point is, is that suddenly East Germany starts experiencing a loss of upwards of like 1% of its population in the span of two months. And a state can't last that long um, with that. And so this is an instance in which, you know, Mars, like most martial states, only exists, or like Israel, only exists if literally everyone is pitching in. Everyone has to do their part. And what is clear from this episode is that 
that that has changed in Mars, that it is now okay for Martians to leave. And this was sort of presaged by what we saw in season four. And without that, Mars is not necessarily going to be doing well because, as you say, it's a it's a martial state. It doesn't have free air. The sky is not blue. Um, it is not clear how they can sustain any sort of sort of upward trajectory that they that we had previously sort of expected out of that planet. In in all the seasons previous until the ring gates open, it's a very proud society. It's a very like mm-hmm. um, you know I always take pleasure in the Mariner Valley being associated with Texas, where I am right now, and that gets us to <laughs> <laughs> compadres. <laughs> um, Alex chooses as his spot for his reunion with Bobby a cowboy bar that is so over the top <laughs> it it would not even be able to exist in texas texas has some pride right no that we are sort of caricatures that bar in some way we we enjoy that bar would not (laughs) exist in texas that bar would exist in massachusetts as a way to try to somehow be emblematic of texas or the bar actually that bar i'm not even sure would exist in the united states it would be like if you were in dubai or something and wanted to go to a western bar that's the, the yeah. I was going to say that Texans don't mind being self caricatures a, a lot of the mm-hmm. time. Like it's it's part of the kind of the culture to kind of like yeah we're you know you know don't mess with yeah. Texas and and whatnot. Um, but this is I did not notice until she walked away that the bar stools were saddles. <laughs> <laughs> what I also liked, which isn't even comfortable. Right. Like, <laughs> but the other thing I also noticed was that apparently the beer is not that good. Did you see Bobby's face when she drank the beer? Oh, it's funny. It's probably like um, Lone Star, um, which is not, which only is like, it's a sentimental thing. It's not actually good beer. Um, So in that scene, we already kind of cover the actual, Mm -hmm. you know, substance of that scene. Um, I don't know if there's anything more to wrap up with Bobby and Alex. Probably not. Although I did notice Alex is in touch with his son, even though his wife has told him. Yes kind of not to be and actually that so, was a i don't know as, as interactions go between alex and his family that was a better one yes that's the way I would yes put it. oh and then the other part of that scene that's perhaps important is that he gets an earful from bobby about coming back and trying to be a part of his family um which that has to be from more than just her feelings about alex that has to come from someplace in bobby yeah like people don't react that way unless it's triggering something of their you know, emotions right. That was so. I guess, and I honestly don't know if we're going to know more about this, but I, the, I I assumed that that was born out of Bobby's, you know, still existing guilt about what happened to Esai and Esai's family yeah. and her brother, right? Uh, and, but also her brother, which her brother. I can't remember. Like, I just thought that I don't remember Bobby and her brother having a estrangement in season four. So I think part of that has to do with what happened with her nephew. Mm-hmm. Uh, who she sort of rescued, and then he kind of just, as teenagers do, like moves on. Yes, I w- and, and doesn't really like r- engage further. Right, and it might be the case that baby Bobby is keeping her own distance precisely for because the last time she got close to him, things went awry. Yes. Yeah. So. I also I have another I have another question about the the politics of the show that maybe you can give some some context to some like you know real life context to which is what happens to a society we we it's the inverse of what happens to Mars mm-hmm. it's what's happening to the Belters so Mars has suddenly faced a loss of um, population income reason for being Purpose, yeah. and the OPA now has which has been for generations 
you know, an oppressed class suddenly has a lot of power and a lot of wealth. Yes, I think the most interesting thing about this episode in particular is that for the first time, the OPA... In the last season, OPA is talking about itself as a newly independent state, and it feels the insecurities are rampant throughout anyone who works for the OPA. You see it with Drummer, Ashford, and Fred Johnson, and so forth. But when we see Fred Johnson now, he's acting like the head of a rising power, not not one who's feeling anxious whatsoever. Um, and indeed, the other thing I thought that was interesting was this, was his notion that his claim that we will give up the proto-molecule once we actually have a real navy, because once we have a real navy, we don't need the proto-molecule as a, as a weapon of mass destruction anymore. Um, we can, you know, therefore function uh, uh, more along the lines of the inners, as it were. Um, and that might strike some viewers as naive, but it should be pointed out that actually in the history of nonproliferation, there have been states that have willingly given up nuclear weapons when when they had them or when they were trying to develop them. Um, because they, in some cases, because they received security guarantees, in other cases, because they were sanctioned, um, but in other cases, because they were perfectly comfortable um, with the security situation and realized they didn't need them anymore. Um, South Africa would probably be, uh, post-apartheid would be the, the best example of that. Um, so as weird as it is, Fred might not be lying when he says he'll give up the proto-molecule if the OPA um, acquires a navy. Of course, that said... You know, actors that are growing and like prospering, that does not always mean they are happy um, because growth, <laughs> growth and prosperity also leads to a lot of disruption as well. And indeed, we are clearly seeing that in terms of the belters going every which way and that. And I kind of wonder, it wasn't talked about this episode, but I do wonder what happens with belters who go through the ring gates or whether they are going through the ring gates, given what we know what happened to Naomi last season. <laughs> You mean just the physical issues right. of the needing to take the gravity drugs? Exactly. Like I, I'm, I imagine they're, they're having to take the gravity drugs, but I also imagine there are probably some worlds that don't have the same um, high gravity. gravitational pull right. as Earth. Yeah, that, that are probably less than 1G. Uh, that gets us to Naomi, though. Yes. So in So she's made this decision to go after her son without Holden, which... I think even Naomi knows this is a bad idea. Like, there is no one that's going to be like, great idea, Naomi. That's exactly what you should do. Like, that's a good, high-quality thinking there, Nothing Naomi. bad. Yeah. Nothing bad could happen. There could be no inverse outcomes. Um, and it's funny, because I was listening to the After the Show roundtable that they do on Amazon Prime, and in that discussion, Naomi, or uh, Dominique Tripper who it's so strange to see her without her chest tattoos by the way oh so like those very, are like, actually put on i was so much i i, I like they were convincing enough oh, that yeah, i wondered if they yeah were those real. are belter yeah. those are those are belter tattoos yeah. um she says that this is the first time that naomi has acted out of emotion rather than logic and i'd be like no <laughs> that is not true the gravity drugs yeah. made it at some point stopped making sense right. and she had to be kind of um literally carried off cajoled yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, she she had to give up on this thing that she wanted for emotional reasons. I think that there is a point to saying that that's rare for her, though, because I think that one of the thing that that makes one of the things that makes that character interesting is I think she's like a lot of. I mean, I think a lot of women that I know. I mean, this is I don't think this is a gendered phenomenon, but it's true of a lot of women that that I've had in my life, which is women who are strong, capable 
intelligent, more intelligent than your average bear, but at a, some core level are still trying to repair themselves, are still trying to like make up for some loss. Mm-hmm. And that is a place where their intelligence and strength doesn't make the connection that it does in maybe every other area of their life. I really like that description of of Naomi because I, I, A, I think it's accurate, and B, I think it also explains something that I, I found a little unsatisfying in terms of this episode, which was the, the interaction between Naomi and Holden at the end, which is, you know, Holden is, as Holden is, he's supportive. He learns that, that Naomi wants to go find, you know, has found where Philip is. Holden's like, I'm fine. I'll join you. I'll even stay on the, the, the freighter. I won't even come down. And... Naomi just says flat out, I don't want you to come. But the problem is, is that she never says why. And and it's never discussed. Mm-hmm. And that's how it ends. And I'm like, if I was holding, I would not let it. I would not have stopped there. I would have at least gotten a reason, even if it was a bullshit reason. But like, I need a reason from Naomi for why she doesn't want me to come. Um and so, yeah, I think she doesn't know why. Yeah. I think I think that this is a completely, you know, I don't want to call it irrational because the way that she goes about it is rational. That's actually another kind of Mm -hmm. interesting split. The way that she's doing this is very logically about how she goes about getting the freighter, how she goes about finding him, how she goes about, you know, like all that stuff is going to be logical. It's the purpose of the mission itself that's illogical. So and in in social science, I think it is invisible to her. Yeah, Yeah. no. Go ahead. Oh, we have a social science thing. thing. We We talk about subjective rationality and instrumental rationality. So subjective rationality is, does everyone want the same thing? And that is clear not the case here. Naomi wants something that is slightly questionable or like why she's trying to do this. But to achieve that end, is she being instrumentally rational? She's totally being instrumentally rational. As you say, she's being within the context of I need to find Philip. She's doing everything that you would expect uh, a rational person to do. But yes, when it comes to actually seeing Philip, she perhaps is not thinking things out fully. And now a graceful tra- transition to uh, Philip. And Marcos, which I have another question for the political Ooh, science please, professor, please, which is, um, so the OPA, the Belters, uh, are now a, you know, up and coming mm-hmm. nation state, uh, which is also, it's interesting to me that this is a labor organization that has now become a nation state, right. but. <laughs> think of it, think of it like you know, the ANC, um, actually, in some ways. The African National Congress. Oh, yeah. yeah. Think of it that way. Yeah. I could I can see mm-hmm. that because um, I have questions about like how you join like what sort of like you know transport like passport like <laughs> immigration you know like what that would right. be like but anyway OPA um, now a developing nation yeah. state doesn't have the problems that it had in the past in terms of um, the level of oppression the you know the economic struggles there is this splinter group of terrorists that are not. Um, are either willfully ignoring the expansion and progress that the rest of the country has, or they don't believe in it, but they're acting out of a frame of reference that is we are the oppressed. Yes. So what What the fuck? Like, did, I mean, I guess that must happen, but it, it, it's very clear in the expanse that there is this disconnect. So, yes, and you can argue... For, how would I put this? With all right, within the language of of Earth politics, we might want to argue that this might be the. I mean, in some ways, the 
what seems clear is that the broad spectrum of the OPA are modernizers, right? They want they want what the inners have. They want to be a modern, sophisticated actor, which offers affluence to everyone, um, which means they are no longer. And this is another thing that clearly comes through in this episode is that the OPA is no longer obsessed with the politics of grievance, which has certainly been there throughout much of the of the show of the expanse. Um, there has been a case, very justified, but nonetheless, it's grievance politics. Um, what is clear in this episode is that Fred Johnson doesn't really care anymore. Um, he obviously is concerned about the inners, you know, and doesn't necessarily trust them. But but he thinks of the OPA as being able to on a sustainable path. Whereas the Inaris faction clearly is still operating through the lens of grievance. There's just no other way to put it. I want to point out that that actually makes me understand the opening scene with Naomi a little better, where she's talking to her friend mm-hmm. who's doing the repairs on the Rossi. Mm-hmm. And the friend refers to Martians as dusters. dusters right. And Ni- Naomi is like, you know, let's just call them Martians. And it seemed like a little weird to me, almost like where are these? Where's this very like you know they're really broadcasting, you know, some kind of like PC. PC I was gonna say yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> Naomi is the woke OPA. Kind of like, yes. know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the woke OPA. Right. But the, the way that the the friend responds is she's like, oh, maybe you're more evolved than I am, but there's no grievance in it. Mm-hmm. Like she sort of is like, all right, you know, maybe, yeah, sure, we'll call them Martians. I guess, you know, it'll take me a while to get Right. It doesn't to that. become a thing. But there's no like Yeah. And there's no pushback yeah. on it. There's no like how dare you know, there's no like, yeah, well, I guess you can work with them, but you know, I'm never gonna work with them. Which is what Naomi faced in the past when she's on this like mixed crew, mm-hmm. other OPA um people and belters would give her shit. And actually about- that that gets confirmed in the next scene if you think about it, because in the next scene there's like a dock master or something you know, who comes in and starts berating Naomi um, in pretty serious, you know, like language that could have been inflammatory. And Naomi stands her ground. But what was interesting about that to me was she stands her ground, but she's not pissed at really. She's like she sees this as an annoyance, not as something that attacks her, you know, or insult. She doesn't see it as insulting, Um, not because it might not be, but because she doesn't care. And again, what is striking to me is the, the degree to which the Inaris faction clearly is still operating in that lens, obviously. So are they a little bit like white supremacists? That's actually the first thing that just that came to mind is that there is a politics of grievance in the U.S., uh, okay. which is being carried out by people who are privileged, like which has never made sense to me, although except, you know, racism like but. Is that, I mean, I don't think that's it. Is that a way to think no. about it? Or what were you thinking about? Like, what were what you thinking I was about? thinking about was this is, I mean, in some ways, this gets to the tricky thing in terms of how we think about the belters, because the, the striking thing is, is that when we think about sort of, I, and I was thinking also about what Marco says at the very end, you know, that they, you know, there's that, that fiery speech that you hear the voiceover of, of like, you know, they hate us because we shame them, which by the way, does not normally how it works. Um, colonizers are pretty fine they, they the lack of shame is pretty powerful within colonizers they're not going to be embarrassed by a lot of things um and it says something by the way that within you know sort of historical colonies in the united uh, in in the world they often very have often have strong ties with their metropoles even with you know awful colonizers like spain or portugal um places like that so i would i didn't necessarily buy that line I think the way you have to think of of the Inaris faction, frankly, at this point, is like Al-Qaeda. There's no Mm -hmm. other way to put it because 
they, you know, Inara says we are, you know, because we are weak, we have the power to be audacious. Um, and and mm. that's clearly what they are intending to do. And this is a grievance born. And in some ways, I think the, the Al-Qaeda reference works well because they are coming from a region that has for centuries been subjugated by more powerful actors. But nonetheless, is also a region that has also come into some wealth of its own. Um, and the fact is, is that the more, you know, the, the sort of Al-Qaeda groups or the, the more radical uh, uh, actors don't like the wealth just as much as they don't like the Westerners because they think that with the wealth brings Westernization and they think it's a threat to their identity. That is so much better than my idea. <laughs> In part because, yeah, the white supremacy is just a hard nut to crack, except if you just explain it with racism, which is a really good explanation mm-hmm. um, because it is people who have always been privileged. Right. And, and that's not what you're what, right. Like the, that's not Marco and yeah. That's not the case with the yeah. OPA who has genuine grievances right. and genuine oppression, exactly. genuine struggle that has shaped them for generations um, and, and formed a mindset that is um, appealing, yeah. right? No, it, like, it offers... It, it, there's reasons why people yeah. do it. There's, there's, and in fact, I think Philip is an interesting example of the kind of young person that gets recruited into organizations like Al-Qaeda. Like he's yes. exactly that um, target that when they do recruiting online, they're looking for lonely um, you know, estranged from family, um, smart, and those but, willing to sacrifice, but physically, but not physically, but emotionally, emotionally, um, not necessarily connected to right. a lot of people, and those willing to sacrifice. And willing there to was sacrifice. a very interesting, you know, scene at the very beginning of the episode where Marco, or sorry, not Marco, Philip leaves behind someone um, from the faction. You know, when they were destroying the Earther ship, and the most interesting moment of that to me was that. Uh, Philip's compatriot at first looks at him like, wait, we're not going to go get this guy. What are you talking about? And then, you know, points out that it, it would have been risky to try to get him. And in the end, even though that that guy dies, the the Philip's other sort of henchman looks at him and just sort of nods and says, OK, yeah, I get it now. Um, and if that's the kind of mindset, then then, it you know, it is very hard to cope with that kind of uh, that kind of, of thinking. Um, because it is truly fanatical. And the other thing I would add on this, by the way, which is interesting, is that in the the um, in the uh, the podcast uh, Ty and the Guy, I think it is um, that on this episode, yeah, Ty and, and, Ty that, and that Guy, guy yeah. because yeah. because Amos is when he says some I yeah, am that, that Guy. guy. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, in that podcast, it was interesting because yeah. um, the showrunner uh, explicitly compared the uh, the stealth asteroid to the looming tower. Um, which, yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking, I was thinking about 9-11, um, in watching the asteroids come for Earth. The word audacious doesn't begin to cover. Yeah, exactly. You know, the, the scope of destruction. You know, we think of 9-11 that's our deepest wound as a country, right? Well, it should well, be. Well, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> the the thing that modern Americans think of when they think of like horrible right. mass um, murder, maybe someday it will be 2020, mm-hmm. um, but it is 9-11. But the scope of destruction that could happen if these asteroids make their way to Earth 
you don't have to be a scientist to understand that it's a it's an extinction level event. It it really is. It's what it is. It has been. And the the kind of person that could do that. Mm-hmm. It it is um I don't know. Like I I'm going to be interested to see if they can carry off that as a in a way that's believable because it's you have to be almost inhuman. Yeah, you know? and I, I will say this: credit to the show. The I don't know who the I can the name escapes me, but the actor who plays Marco Anaris, we we first are introduced to him last season, and I have to say there was a charisma to him that I thought was was well executed because it would explain how he could actually attract people to do this kind of murderous thing. But I think the thing that I it will also be interesting to go forward because these are t- these are trends that are in in conflict with each other, which is whether. The Inaris grievance jihad, as it were, how will that sit with an OPA and with the Belter population that by and large things are getting better for them? And I, I, I would assume that that's going to be tricky because I assume that the Belters are not necessarily, even though they still have grievances, are not necessarily going to want to see this happen. Although it's also true that they were oppressed yes. for a really long fucking time. And it's one thing to kind of let go of your grievance. And it's another thing to be able to give aid or make alliances with out of um, not mutual need. Yeah. Right. Because if, if something bad happens to Earth, that's different than the protomolecule threat, which was something that everyone. threatened no, everyone. True. And they had to band together. Something happens to Earth. I'm, you know, some builders could be like, yeah, well, fuck you. It could like, be. No, no, no. It's, you know, it's, come that's up, I mean, let me put this way. I think know. this is one of the known unknowns <laughs> of this season, um, which will be what the yeah. response is. I think that gives us a good place to wrap I up. I agree. I'm All not going right. to lie on it. This has been, it's, it's, it's good to do this again. It is good to do this again. It's good to have the expanse back. And we will be back. I will talk to you next week. Till then. <laughs>